Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll go down to the um, Catechism Bible memory work. So we're still in the table of duties, and so it's a Bible... This is the Bible, one of the Bible verses that's given about citizens. So let's say together, submit yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. First Peter 2, 13 to 14. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, Through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul in all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school, and we are going to tackle, and confirmation, and we are going to tackle Mark chapter 3, and we already did the first five verses or so, but we'll refresh our memories on that too. Mark chapter 3, forgot my Bible, let's see here. All right, so the first uh, six verses or so were about the man with the shriveled hand. And we, just as kind of an introduction and, and um, refresher, we talked about with that man with the shriveled hand, how that's like the grace that God offers us, right? The man with the shriveled hand, he couldn't really accept anything in his hand, right? He couldn't, or he couldn't do anything with his hand. He had a shriveled hand, right? So um, it's not that he could actively do something to to take the gifts of Jesus. But um, in faith, he stretched out his hand at the call of Jesus and and received the gifts of Jesus, right? And this is, um, as as Jesus' ministry goes on, this is also, of course, how um, the Pharisees continue to get upset at Jesus for what he's doing, right? Because he does this on the Sabbath, for one, Right, and this goes against their kind of ideas about what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And uh, but really, what he's uh, what they're upset about in the context of this, and we we looked at this more in chapter two, is that Jesus is offering forgiveness, right, and he's establishing a new covenant, and they think that they're in this old covenant. Um, you picked the wrong seat, Joe. <laughs> You also got caught at communion, right? You were the you, you stood right in the right spot at communion, yeah. There was one person at every communion table that was right in the sun. Um, and that was those darn windows. Um, it's slowly moving that way, so by the end of Bible study, it should be uh, out of our way. Anyhow, uh, because they the Pharisees are operating under this understand this specific understanding of the old covenant that they have a way to get to Jesus or a way to get to salvation without Jesus, right? And they, they don't think they need the Messiah. 
And this is something that you'll see throughout the Gospels is that really the Pharisees, they end up pretty clearly knowing who Jesus is. It's not like they don't believe he's the Messiah. It's that they don't want a Messiah. Right? They think they have it figured out on their own. And they don't they determine they don't need a savior. Okay. So whenever he says things like, um, you know, I did not come for the righteous, but for uh, for the sick, right? Um, that that uh, well people have no need of a uh, of a physician, right? That the, these are things that greatly offend them. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Okay. Now what we wanted to talk about after the withered hand is in uh, verse six. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, this is actually great that we talked about Herod today um, because in, in the gospel reading, because that gives us a little bit of an idea of who the Herodians are. So the Herodians are a group of Jews, right? So, okay, Judea. And, and really, whenever you see the word Jews, by the way, in the Gospels, it's Judeans, Eudaios in Greek, um, really just people that are, you know, the ethnic people of the land of Judea is, is what that refers to. So kind of the Judah of the Old Testament most often. And uh, so it has a, a little bit more to do, not so much with bloodline as it, um, that's part of it, but it also, it also has to do with um, or, and it's not so much about like God's chosen people per se, as much as it is more of a locale type of situation. But the uh, Judea is under Roman rule at the time, right? And they they have kind of this. So they you know they were allowed to go back under the Persian Empire and rebuild the temple, and they kind of had some independence there. Um, but then the Roman uh, Romans came in and and conquered and. Um, they're under this Roman rule, but they're still allowed to have a little bit of their own independence. And there's this kind of battle amongst Judeans, amongst the Jews, about how they should handle that. So there are some that are very anti-Roman, and some that are very pro-Roman, and some people that are kind of in the middle. Now, what's very interesting here is that the Pharisees are anti-Romanists, right? Um, the Pharisees are very much about um, controlling the land and having their own independence because they're purists, right? That's how Pharisees are. They're purists. The Herodians are the group of Jews that are more pro-Rome, right? They're on the side of Herod. And they actually think that Herod, the, the, so Herod is kind of a minor Roman ruler, right? Because you have Caesar is the great king. And then you have these kind of lesser princes and rulers um, governing these vassal states. Well, Herod is the, Her- the Herodian family or the, the Herod family, right? Because there's actually multiple Herods. And this, this is actually a different Herod than the Herod we read about today, but it, it's still helpful to have that context. Um, the the family of, of Herod is this kind of royal family that has been ruling for the Romans this this area of Judea, and he's friendly with some of the Jews, right? And this is why there are some that are uh, devoted to him. And the Herodians are the group that actually thinks that that Herod is going to be this kind of political Messiah, right? They're looking for a Messiah. But they, they're not looking for a theological Messiah. They're not looking for a Messiah to forgive their sins. They're looking for a Messiah who's uh, going to make them a great nation, right? And you see this throughout the Gospels, too, with Jesus, is that they, everyone's wondering when he's going to make, uh, you know, to quote one of our modern political leaders, uh, make Israel great again, right? This is, this is what they're looking for. You know, is, is this the time that you came to restore Israel, right? And even after he's risen from the dead, some of the disciples are wondering this. Is this the time you're going to restore Israel? And they don't get that that's about the new heavens and the new earth yet. Not all the time. All right, now Jesus makes that clear in his own time. But um, the Herodians don't care about Jesus. They don't like Jesus because they think Herod is going to be their political savior, their political messiah. So that's who the Herodians are. 
And the Pharisees uh, are kind of generally enemies of the Herodians because they're about Jewish independence. But what's interesting here is that they both unite against Jesus. That's the point we're getting to, is that they both hate Jesus, right? That both the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are normally political enemies, they unite against Jesus, right? And here's the other thing. They're both majorly influential parties, right? They're both major players in the, the landscape of Judea. And this is the, the great thing, right? So the Pharisees um, went out and began to plot with their audience uh, how to kill Jesus. And Jesus, as, as we go on and, and what you've already seen, he doesn't care, right? He just keeps on doing what he came to do. And he keeps on preaching and teaching and healing. And he does not care about their influence, right? And, and this is something... Um, that is surprising about Jesus in some ways, right? That even though we we know what Isaiah 53 says about how he's going to be stricken and smitten and afflicted, that it still comes as somewhat of a surprise that Jesus tends always toward this humility, toward this meekness, right? That he ne- he doesn't assert his uh, he doesn't lord over his divinity over over groups of people, right? It's not like the Pharisees and the Herodians start to plot to kill him and he just like stands up and strikes them all down in front of him, right? And he could, right? He could do that. Um, in John 19, I believe it is, um, maybe, no, it's, maybe it's 18, whenever Jesus is arrested uh, and he... He, they, the guards say that they're looking for Jesus. Um, what does he do, right? He, he says, I am he, which is a way to claim his divinity with the phrase I am, which is a, a version of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, what, what, what happens to the guards? They all fall down backwards, right? So Jesus allows that to happen, but then he also still submits and is arrested. But Jesus could do that at any point, right, if he wanted to. He could just strike all his enemies down and and go ahead and go straight to whatever he wants to do. But he's meek, right? He's humble. He came not to, serve, he came not to be served, but to serve, right? He doesn't want to be this great political leader. He doesn't want, and this goes back to our major theme of Mark, he does not want to um, be seen as this kind of miracle worker, or this magician, or even this political leader, he wants everyone to focus on the cross. That's what he desires. Okay, so uh, that's verse six. Let's uh, keep reading on here. Um, We'll just do kind of a paragraph at a time, verse seven through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they had heard all that he was doing, many people came to him, from Judea, Jerusalem, Eudamea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him, for he had healed many. So those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Okay, so here we have the multitude growing. That's no surprise. Um, this is kind of one of the themes in Mark is that the multitude grows and grows and grows and that they won't leave him alone. And that, um, he, that, that it, it brings a uh, kind of a picture of what we were just saying, that Jesus doesn't want to be known as this magic miracle worker, right? but he wants to be known for his preaching and for the cross and for what endures. And... Um, it, it gives that even a little bit more umph whenever the crowd just won't stop, right? You just the, And this is the other theme in Mark that we've talked about is this action theme, right? It's like they're continuing to press in on him. They won't let him go, right? How's that worded? Um, uh, because the crowd, uh, let's see. Yeah, to keep ready for him, feel him. And they, they, were, they were pushing, verse 10, they were pushing forward to touch him. Right? They just won't, they won't stop. The pressure doesn't stop. The action doesn't stop. Okay. But uh, what's, what's particularly interesting in this passage is that the demons know who he is. Right? So we talked about, uh, we've talked about this 
idea before too, and Mark, that it's almost a surprise that Jesus is the Son of God, right? They expect the Messiah to be a man. They expect the Messiah um, to be a servant. They expect the Messiah to be someone who is born out of David's line, right? Uh, so the the people who are paying attention, they get the genealogy, they get some of the prophecies, right? They know he's supposed to be a prophet. They know he's um, su- supposed to act in a priestly way, right? They know he's even supposed to be a king of sorts. But the thing that they don't necessarily get right away and that they struggle with the most, most is his divinity, that he's actually the incarnate son of God. And what's interesting here is that the demons know first, right? And the demons recognize him. And in a way we could say, right, of course they know, right? That the devil knows what's going on when he goes into the Garden of Eden, right? Even more than Adam and Eve do, right? The, the devil knows um, the Bible inside and out, right? He's one of the Lord's fallen angels. And um, what's interesting even though they're right, right, and, and you could wonder here, okay, well, the demons are saying a right thing. They're saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Why doesn't Jesus allow them to say that? Well, I think one answer would be um, just on a practical level, people don't believe demons, right? So there's really, it's not really helpful for them to be saying something that's true, but that's how demons operate is they say half-true things or true things, but then mix in other lies, right? And so they're confusing and untrustworthy. But the other thing is that it doesn't really matter if the demons know or not. Jesus doesn't care if the demons know. Jesus cares if you know, right? He cares if the people know. And it's the people who need to repent of their sins and the people who need to recognize him as the son of God. And so he tells the demons, you know, basically, hey, shut up, (laughs) right? I want the people to figure out who I am. So that's an interesting thing. All right. Um, any questions so far? Yep, John. Well, not a question so much, but an observation. Sure. You were saying Jesus pretty much knows he's on this mission. How many years this mission is supposed to last is probably a secret between him and the Father. And he knows that his primary mission is to die mm-hmm. on the cross. That's it. And when it happens, you know, that happens. And, yeah, it's kind of far away in the future. Now, what you're commenting about, the the Son of God thing, I can see how this could just kind of wreck the whole plan of a three-year ministry in that if that gets out, I mean, the, the, the Romans would find out eventually Hey, this guy isn't saying he's king. He's saying he's God. You know, they would have to get on it immediately. And so, hence, yes, Jesus does need to say, keep that quiet. Because yeah. I don't need, I don't need any outsiders, you know, botching up my whole plan of my ministry. Yeah, and there's definitely this kind of like balance that Jesus is constantly playing in the Gospels, where he has to keep um, the pressure to a certain degree before it's before things are time, right? So different gospels do this different ways. John's gospel comes to mind that multiple times throughout John's gospel, he says, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, right? And then finally, when he's getting toward Jerusalem and, and Holy Week, he says, the hour has come, yeah. right? And so he's got to, and like um, also in John's gospel, for instance, whenever um, in John 6 at the feeding of the 5,000, when they seek to make him king, he has to uh, run away, right? And you see him doing that in Mark too. He constantly, the crowds will gather and gather and gather and he'll do what he can because he wants to heal them. He wants to make them well, but then he'll have to um, depart, right? And hide and keep that pressure down as he's, as the time is coming that uh, when he knows the hour will come. Another thought has occurred on that. Now, it's every year all the Jews go to Jerusalem and they make their sacrifices. 
correct? Right, yeah, that, I mean, uh, a lot of them do. A lot of them. Yeah, he, seemingly he goes to the Passover every time, right? Yeah, so, so if he's known as the Son of God going to Jerusalem, that's going to wreak havoc before his hour has come. Right. In the previous two years, that would wreak havoc. Yeah, he does. Uh, it, he kind of wreaks his own havoc at the Passover. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, well, no, it's just Matthew and I can't remember what old Gospels it's in. In the Synoptics, um, the flipping over the tables, I don't think it's in Mark, actually. Uh, the flipping over the tables um, happens during Holy Week. Right. But this is one of the interesting things about the Gospels. Um, but John says that it happens at like the first Passover over Jesus' ministry, and then Holy Week's not till the third Passover. So um, those, if we take John as being maybe a little less consolidated and a little more um, specific with the timeline of certain things. John cares a lot about the feasts that are happening that and how Jesus uh, participates in like the Feast of Weeks, for instance. Um, then we can see that Jesus, um, he does do certain things to kind of wreak havoc, but it's on his own terms, right? It's on his own terms. And so that's that's the difference, is that he wants to reveal himself in the way that he wants to reveal himself. And that, as we've seen in Mark so far, the main way he wants to reveal himself really is in preaching and forgiving sins, because that's what matters, right? The healing is just something that he can't help himself. So, um, good comments. All right, so 13 through 19. <laughs> Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to who he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, uh, Boanerges, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so um, we have here a couple of things to point out that Jesus had already called a few of the disciples. Now he calls the rest of them um, by way of process of elimination. The new ones are Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the Less, um, to be distinguished from James uh, the there's either two or three James, depending on how you count it. Um, there's James of Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus, and then there's James uh, the Less, who's one of the... Uh, the James the Less is the son of Alphaeus, and then James the son of Zebedee um, and his brother John. James the son of Zebedee is James the Greater. Now, some people think James uh, the son of Alphaeus was also the James of Jerusalem and either half-brother or brother or cousin of Jesus. But I think it's three different James for what it's worth. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. But you get the new, the new ones um, here are James, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James the Less, Thaddeus, and Simon, and, and Judas. Okay, so you get um, about half of them are new. Half of them we've already seen have been called. Now, 12 is an important number because this, uh, more than anything, it parallels the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So um, Jacob had the the 12 sons who became 12 tribes of Israel, kind of, because Joseph's sons each get a half tribe, and then the Levites don't get their own land, and there's all of that nonsense. But um, basically, you have the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 is this number in the Bible that is this completeness of the church specifically, right? And so you have the, in the old covenant, you have the 12 tribes. In the new covenant, you have the 12 apostles who go out and start the churches and plant the churches and all this. Now, um, you can see how important that number of completion is for them in that after Judas 
commits suicide, which we get two accounts of that, one in the Gospels, one in Acts 1, what do the apostles go and do right away? They go elect one to replace them, yeah. Which is kind of funny um, because they it, it almost seems like they jumped the gun a little bit because Jesus was going to call Paul, right? And then Paul gets to be this 13th apostle. But um, we like the story of Matthias, obviously, because I named my son after him. But um, yeah, that's where Matthias comes from, right? So Matthias is this apostle that replaces Judas. But that number 12 is important to them, right? They, they, they feel like they need to have 12. So, um, but you also have 12, uh, com- you have this completeness all the time, right? So you have 12 basketfuls left over at the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about how that's obviously a very important narrative in that it's in all the gospels. You have uh, 12 trumpets in Revelation, right? So you have the 144,000 in, in Revelation, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000, so, um, which is supposed to be the, the Old and New Testament church with its greatness. So, uh, yeah, 12 is a very important number here. Now, um, we could go through... Um, excuse me. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. We could go through like the lives of all these apostles, but since we're doing Mark and Mark likes to move forward and, and be action-packed, I think we're going to kind of skip that. Um, but the apostles do have very interesting lives. And um, they're, the, thing, the point I'll make is that we already saw this when he called Matthew just a few, um, not that many verses ago, but the apostles are a very, what I describe as a ragtag group of individuals. Right, and they they're very representative in a sense of um, the people around the world at the time that Jesus is ministering, because you have kind of your layman Jewish people that are fishermen, right? You're just kind of have your your blue collar uh, Jewish workers. Um, then you have uh, Luke, who's a Gentile physician, or is kind of an upper class Gentile. You have um, Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's probably hated by the fishermen, right? You, and you have, uh, here we, we also had uh, Simon, uh, who is, has, some of them get specific names, right? Some of them are just sons, but some of them get specific names. Like Simon is a, is a zealot, right? And um, that's someone who is a converted Canaanite who's now uh, zealous for the religion, Right, so um, he's not—he's a Gentile, but he's converted to Judaism, and uh, but Jesus becomes his rabbi, so he's ultimately converted to to Christianity, right? And uh, he's a zealous man, right? So um, quite the ragtag group of individuals, and then Judas, of course, who um, is uh, called, but the is ends up being a thief, right, and the betrayer of Jesus, right, which God allows to happen. So very ragtag group, but um, it's good, right, because similar to the story of the Magi being, you know, Persian sorcerers, uh, you find out that everyone belongs with Jesus, right? There's no one that doesn't belong with Jesus. So uh, he came for the whole world. All right. Oh, the other thing I was going to point out here, this, this thought uh, occurred to me, that he sends them out to preach and to heal. Right? Those are the, uh, no, excuse me, to, to preach and to drive out demons, which is like healing, right? And I, this thought occurred to me that what Jesus does in his ministry when he physically heals people and physically casts out demons, and then he preaches, that's very um, analogous and in fact, it's um, the predecessor to what happens in the New Testament church with what we often in Lutheran church call word and sacrament ministry, right? That basically the two things that happen in the liturgy on Sunday mornings are the service of the word, right, preaching, and the service of the sacrament. And it occurred to me that the casting out demons and the healing that Jesus does and that the disciples do, that's like the sacraments in a sense, because it's Jesus being physically present with the people, right? And giving them a tangible gift in their lives. 
And so um, in, a, in a way, right, and this is, I think, why the early church fathers would call um, the Lord's Supper like the medicine of immortality, is that um, the ministry of Jesus really never changes once it starts, right? Now, we don't have um, healings and exorcisms on a regular basis, right, at the church, um, and especially with the exorcisms, I'm not saying there's never a place for that. But uh, we do have, week in and week out, Jesus' continued ministry in a tangible gift, the Lord's Supper, right, uh, which is for our bodies and souls, and, and his preaching. Um, so that thought occurred to me is that those things, are they're not even really just analogous to each other. It's that the word and sacrament ministry of the New Testament church is a continuation of Jesus' ministry in that way. So um, you can disagree with me if you want. Like I said, it's just a thought I had. But all right, let's uh, continue on there. Uh, Verses 20 to 27. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. Uh, It's just incessant. So that he and the disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, this is uh, quite interesting, right? Um, we'll, we'll pause there for a second. That Jesus' own family, and you get this even in more detail in, in some of the other Gospels, Jesus' own family denies him, right? And Jesus will preach on this, and he'll say things like, um, actually, do we have, yeah, we have some of it here. Right, but that, um, and we're going to get more of this at the end of the the chapter. But that to follow, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, it sometimes means um, being at discord with your own family, and Jesus is at times at discord with his own family. Right, they don't like the attention he's bringing on them, on their family. Right, and they don't. Um, like the fact that he's uh, continuing to do all these things uh, that he's doing. And uh, kind of like John was saying earlier, they they kind of want to just brush it off as he's out of his mind, right? That they just think he's out of his mind. And they, they don't want the reputation that could come along with this because they see how badly it could go. And they also see how hated Jesus is. Right? He's hated by the Herodians and by the Pharisees. And they don't want to be connected with that. Yeah. So I guess you infer from that that Mary just kind of forget everything about birth? Well, I think if you read in between the lines, um, so yeah, there's a couple things. One is like Mary stored up all these things in her heart. Right? So we get that in Luke 2. And then in John 2, we get the wedding at Cana, which unfortunately... Um, because of the Easter being so early this year, we don't get on a Sunday this year. Um, technically, it would be like around this time. We'd get wedding at Cana. But in wedding at Cana, um, Mary, this is the very first thing Jesus does in his ministry when he turns the water into wine. And at first, you can see Mary is um, kind of pleasant and excited about the fact that Jesus is able to do these miracles, right? She's she's like, oh, Jesus, you can take care of this problem, right? They ran out of wine. Jesus, good thing my son is Jesus, right? He can just take care of it. And he says, uh, yeah, right. That's kind of the attitude in some ways, right? And, and Jesus says, uh, what does he say there? Woman, he calls her woman. And, uh, you know, the, the feminists really hate this, of course, but... Um, Oh, the NIV does a terrible job with this. Um, okay, anyway. The, the, you're fine. Uh, the, so John 2, 4, the NIV says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? As if he's being very nice to his mother. That's not how the Greek reads. It's, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And uh, he rebukes her, right? He's Jesus. He can do that, okay? Um, and... He uh, 
he says, that's one of the times he says, my hour has not yet come. So Mary is maybe a little bit confused at first, right? But then at the end of John's gospel, at the crucifixion, um, Mary is totally devoted to him again. And she uh, is given to John to be taken care of, right? At some point, Joseph passed away. And so it is uh, an interesting thing whether or not Mary potentially had any of these feelings, right? Um, when it, it says, right, so, uh, and, and I mean, her, he, she's said to be there, right? Um, later on in verse 31, right, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and um, and he says, well, we'll get to that in a second, but uh, she's there, right? And seemingly is is kind of, not happy with the way things are going. So I think it's this interesting kind of roller coaster, right? If you read in between the lines, that uh, she starts out incredibly faithful, right? Sings the Magnificat, um, all of these things. And she's always pictured this way, right? Especially uh, in in the kind of Christmas story and whatnot is this, um, you know, pure, undefiled, uh, young, young girl. And that's true. It's true, but yeah, she uh, she gets a little bit combative at times. It, it kind of, I think, if, if you kind of track the wedding at Cana, right? She's um, maybe a little probably around fifteen or fourteen. That well, that's uh, so. So she's probably. I don't know. I've always heard that. I I still have to look that up. People always say she's probably like fifteen. I don't know where that exactly comes from. She's just a young maiden. I mean, she's that. I guess it's just like that's the common age of around around marriage yeah so sure that's that's fine i mean i ha- i always hate like just throwing in these cultural things that the bible's not clear on but um anyhow uh what was i saying yeah you can, so his his ministry begins you know when he's like 30 so um yeah, she would have been closer to like 45 at that time, uh, at least. So, um, she's yeah, she's maybe a little more bitter toward him, or uh, what you know, whatever the case is, just uh, not as fully on board, right? And you can kind of think it, it maybe it's a little bit like Abraham, you know, like Abraham's given this promise, and then him and Sarah are just like trying to have kids and trying to have kids and trying to have kids. And then like, they're getting old and they're like, okay, that, that was great when you came to me and I moved here and you know, all these, we had this nice vision of the Lord and you know, I met the angel and all that, but uh, like, come on, God, what's going on? You know, I wonder if Mary's kind of going through the same thing. You know, she's like she, all this amazing stuff happened, and then Jesus is growing and he's growing and he's growing, and he gets through his twenties and he's still just, you know, being a carpenter, right? In theory, right? Throughout his twenties. Do we know how many other children? No, we don't. Um, there's differing opinions on this. So, like the Roman Catholics will tell you that uh, Mary remained a virgin forever. That's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And um, whenever it talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters, that those words in the Greek can also be used for cousin. Which the word the words for brothers and sisters in Greek can also be used for cousins. So so the Roman Catholics will say argue that and say you know that she was a perpetual virgin. I don't um, I don't buy it for a whole host of reasons, but um, I so the anyway that's a whole debate there are some lutherans that hold to that so i mean it, like if you want to believe that mary was a virgin forever i don't you care yeah there, there's also that there's a whole lot of reading in between the lines we can do here um right yeah other than like being a really good kid right like that he followed the law all the time right so he's always you know respectful always honorful and everything but um 
yeah, like other than that, it seems like he was, you know, probably just a did regular guy. regular guy, right? He was meek, and that, that's what that's part of the point of the thing. Like Philippians two, that he took on the form of human, like lowered himself to be, um, like like I said, not not to be served, but to serve, right? Took on human flesh, um, took on the obedience of of humanity, and he was yeah, he probably wasn't even like. You know, um, he probably wasn't like a bodybuilder or anything either. He was probably just like a normal dude, you know, like, so. Yeah, yeah, he was fine. You know, he probably wasn't like, he wasn't effeminate either, you know, like, but he was um, probably just, you know, average, like, for whatever the time was. So, um, okay. Uh, yeah. So they don't want to be. Ha- they don't want him to be hated. They don't want to be hated. Um, so on and so forth. But the problem is here that uh, the family. Do- um, in a in a sense, they're almost too close to him, right? So, uh, I think it's in Matthew's gospel where he says a prophet has no place to uh, rest his head, right, in in his hometown. And so this is a kind of a continual problem. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons I think James of Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus and James, the um, lesser are different people, is because uh, it seems that if we take James as a, the, of Jerusalem as a literal brother of Jesus, what happens is that he doesn't follow Jesus during Jesus' ministry but then after um, it said that he appeared to that James in 1 Corinthians 15, and after Jesus appeared to James in the resurrection, then James converted and became the bishop of Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus. So that's a, inter- another interesting story to keep in mind here is that one of the brothers here was pro- probably James of Jerusalem. So, okay, um, let's keep moving to 22 then. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Okay, so uh, Beelzebub, let me see. I don't know if I even have this in my notes. Um, no, Beelzebub is like the, the lord of the, uh, the bees or something like that, or the lord of the flies, I don't remember. Um, but it's this kind of mixing of, of a pagan demon and of the devil. And uh, Jesus calls them out and spokes, speaks to them in this parable, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He will be guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Okay, so Jesus makes a couple points here. The first is um, they're kind of stupid for saying he has a demon when he's casting out demons because if uh, a divided house cannot stand, there it is what he says, is that um, if I'm casting out Satan Satan using Satan's name, then Satan is pointless, right? Satan is powerless. His house is divided. He's fallen. Um, but then he goes into this bit about the strong man, uh, which this is actually a very encouraging passage. Right, so Jesus says that a stronger man has to come and bind the strong man, and what he's saying there is, I'm the stronger man. Right, Satan is strong. Satan has plundered these people's bodies and souls. Right, Satan has entered into these people's bodies, and he's plundered them. But a stronger man has to come and bind the strong man. You can't have uh, a fellow strong man defeat the other strong man. You have to have a stronger man, right? Satan can't defeat Satan. There has to be someone stronger than Satan. And so that's what Jesus has done, right? He's bound the strong man. 
And that finds its fulfillment, of course, um, in, we, we read about in 1 Peter, when, when Jesus, after his burial, descends into hell and speaks to the spirits in prison, right? He sticks it to the devil, right? He won the battle, right? He's bound the stronger man. And then, uh, of course, finally in Revelation 2, when um, the, the devil will be defeated in the final battle and, and he'll be bound forever, right? So this is Jesus binding the stronger man, binding the strong man. All right, and then um, we get the unforgivable sin. And uh, this is, it's kind of an interesting place for it to come, right? But uh, I'll, I'll just explain it. I think it's actually not that hard to understand. People always have a lot of questions about the unforgivable sin. Um, but I don't think it's that hard to understand. So he says, uh, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So first of all, um, we should never get a whole and complete theology from two little verses, right? We have to take things in context. And that context is not just this paragraph, but it's all of Jesus' teaching, right? So... Um, when he says all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, he's not preaching some kind of universalism or denying that repentance is needed for forgiveness or something like that. Um, what he's saying there in context is that all kinds of sins, right? Any sin anyone commits and or any blasphemy anyone speaks can be forgiven, right? Now, he doesn't go into detail about how that works here, right? He does that other places about how forgiveness works. But he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And what is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? That's unbelief, right? That's all it is, right? If someone, so let, let's take again the context of wider scripture, how how does faith happen? Faith happens because the word is spoken and the Holy Spirit works faith in the heart of the believer, right? And to reject the Holy Spirit, right? To reject the one that's been put into your heart as a believer in Christ, right? Faith and the Holy Spirit go together. When you have faith, you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, to reject the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to be in a state of unbelief. Right? And so if someone is in a state of unbelief, if someone is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, then they are not forgiven. And as long as that's the case, they are never forgiven. Right? And so this is um, a little bit of a verb lesson here. Right? He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a present tense, um, but we would almost, we would call it it's, it's a little bit harder to do in English, but it's the continuing on, right? So it's a, it's a present perfect, right? So um, we would, a bet, maybe a little bit better way to translate this would be uh, the, per, the one who is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, right? So it's, um, it's not even that if someone... Um, uh, falls away from the faith and then repents and comes and comes back to Jesus, that they'll be denied, right? It's that the person who is presently blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that is presently presently rejecting faith, right, turning Jesus away, turning the Holy Spirit away, that they are in a state of unforgiveness, right? So that's all he's talking about here is is unbelief, and. Um, but if, if you are in the opposite state, if you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? If you're, if you're in faith, then that means all sins that you commit can be forgiven, right? And, and then again, we have to take in the context of wider scripture. That also doesn't mean that if you go without repentance, that you won't end up blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? So um, this isn't I think the the, pro, the bigger problem with this passage when people don't understand it is that they don't take into account the wider context of Scripture on how forgiveness 
and faith works, right? You, you have to reconcile it with the rest of the Bible. You can't just take it alone. So um, people always take this as like, oh, there's like, basically I can do anything I want unless I do this one thing, right? That's, that's really not what he's saying here. Um, you just have to reconcile it with the rest of scripture. Yeah, John? Would it be perhaps, well, while you're saying all this, I was just thinking that instead of just not believing, because there are many people, billions in the world who do not believe, but don't necessarily are exposed to Christianity. But how about the idea that refusal to believe? Because that means then that they have been told of Jesus, but they're refusing it. Yeah, I, I would say that, ironically, this is the part I left out of my sermon because I... Um, just thought it didn't flow very well, but I, I should have talked about it. Um, We're discussing it here. We're yeah, no. This up no, I just think it's funny that I, I was going <laughs> to talk about it in the sermon and I didn't. But um, so I'll say a couple of things about this idea of people who have never had the chance to believe or have never heard the gospel. Um, actually, first of all, let me say this. You're, you're totally on track that if someone outrightly rejects the gospel, right? If they've heard the gospel and they reject it. See, that's different than someone who does Yeah, I would say it is different, and it's and it's it's an obvious blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, right? Where um, that and that's the the phraseology that's that's used in in Scripture generally is that uh, someone is rejecting God, right? Does the Greek and Hebrew writings give any light on this? Or is this just as it is written here that whoever blasphemes, that's it, they're done. You know, um, they well, like I said, it's, it, no I if I remember right, it's a present perfect, it's is blaspheming. Yeah. So I think that's a little bit helpful. Um, I think what's even more helpful is just taking it into account with the rest of scripture, but it's a fairly faithful translation. Um, but... It's interesting that something as severe and as important as that has not been elaborated on at all, because that's a that's a big deal. To, yeah. You, that you know you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven. I mean, that's a big one. Yeah. Well, I think. There's nothing more said about it. There's no elaboration or anything. But John, I think while he's saying it's you yeah. have to be permanent blasphemy. You can stop blaspheming. Yeah, you can stop blaspheming and then not be blaspheming anymore. Right. And then you're okay. Then you're in. Yeah, right. Yeah, so... That's why it has to continue on in your rejection of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. No, that's what you do first. Yeah. You are continually rejecting. Right. But when you repent... The, the, your situation completely changes. Well, that's true, but that's why I brought up the word rejecting, which is different yep. than not having the faith. Yeah, so um, I do want to address, I think that answers that question. I, I do want to address this idea of the people who have never had the chance to believe. Um, so first of all, I don't want to, um, Scripture never makes excuses for sin, right? So if someone is sinful, it's their fault. Right. And like Romans one is good on this, um, that they they at least know na nature and natural law. And if someone is committing sin, um, they are accountable for that to God. Mm -hmm. Now, the script, what the scriptures never say is what exactly God is going to do if someone comes to heaven or to the, you know, to the pearly gates or whatever. Or someone comes to be judged, whatever that looks like. And they grew up on some island and they literally never heard the word of God, right? The Bible does not give us that answer. And in fact, the Bible tells us you're not the judge, God is, so don't worry about it, right? Um, I believe that's like Romans 10 and he says like, uh, don't bring, uh, try and bring God up from the dead or bring God down from heaven, like that's not your job. But um, what I will say is that First of all, um, 
the uh, well, the reason I was going to bring it up at Epiphany is because you get these, you know, pagans from the east that God reveals Himself to. And if you look at world history and you look at Bible history, um, there are certainly people who individually have not had the chance to maybe hear the gospel. And and like I said, we have to just kind of deal with that. But um, God has been more gracious than we maybe sometimes portray him as in spreading his gospel throughout the world. Right. So like um, I thought about this a lot. Right. I'm still, still thinking about it when we do that Genesis Bible study that like Ishmael, for instance, had the gospel when he went his way. Right. In fact, he was given like a blessing by God. And um, the fact that the descendants of Ishmael have uh, turned toward, you know, majority towards Islam is um it's not like random happenstance. It's a rejection of the gospel. And this has something to do, I think, with what God says when he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, that those who disobey him uh, will be punished to the third and fourth generation. That there is a generational consequence that comes when groups of people reject the gospel, and that leads to the downfall of nations. So that's part of it, is that in some sense there was a chance to believe, but because of the failure of nations and parents, um, that was taken away. And hopefully it comes again. Also, so then the next thing is like, if you look at the history of missionaries, the gospel has gone a lot of places, right? And it hasn't always started. Sometimes it's rejected, right? Um, the the path is narrow, and um, sometimes people, many times, people will reject it, right? Nonetheless, we continue to raise up and send missionaries many places. Okay, so uh, again, I think maybe God is a little more gracious than sometimes we give him credit for in his ability to spread the gospel, right? And then the other thing you get, um, I had like a friend of mine who kind of grew up and unbeliever and has recently in as an um more elderly gentleman started going to church very interesting guy to talk to and you know he he has a it's funny because he has a lot of these tropes you know that people always say and and he brought this one up right which is like you know what about someone who never had the chance to believe and then he was like well come on be honest like if someone is raised um uh, I think he said Buddhist, and that's all they ever know, then they're going to be Buddhist. And, you know, even that I question, right? Because I know a lot of people who were raised Christian, who uh, basically you know everyone they knew growing up was Christian, and they're not Christian anymore, right? So it's not like people can't change, right? And it's not like a Buddhist is immune from that, right? If a, if a Buddhist hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, all I ever knew is Buddhism. God's not going to like be like, oh, yeah, I guess you're okay then, because that's all you ever knew. If you heard the gospel and you rejected it, you heard the gospel and you rejected it. Um, so anyway, that's a, another aside. But yeah, that that's a... Uh, I didn't mean for us to go down that rabbit trail. No, it's a rabbit trail I wanted to go down, so it's fine. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and he's very gracious, right? I mean, like the the parable of the workers in the vineyard is great for this too, right? The the that they um, we're actually going to have that, and I can't remember which of the pre-Lent Sundays it is, but it's either, well, I don't want to guess. Anyway, um, in the next two months or so, we'll have that reading where they everyone is awarded a denarius, whether they worked one hour or the whole day, right? And so God is incredibly gracious in the giving out of salvation, right? So I kind of, it, it always, I, I guess what rubs me the wrong way is, especially when like kind of 
um, people who are immature in faith or like unbelievers especially will be like, this is like a trope to catch you. Like, oh, isn't it so scandalous that that God would, um, you know, punish people or, or damn people um, when they haven't really had the chance to, to believe or something like this? And um, like, like I said, if there's someone who legitimately grew up on an island, middle of nowhere, never heard the gospel, like that's, God can deal with that however God wants to deal with that. But um, the, again, it's just, a, it's just such a trope. It's like, come on, like let's think through this a little more deeply than that. So anyway, that's, I'll get off my soapbox. All right, what time is it? Man, I thought I was going to get through chapter three. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all the gifts that you give us in your word. And we pray that these words from Mark would be a blessing to our ears, that we would inwardly digest them and that you would strengthen us through them. And we thank you for all the good gifts that you give us and that you have given us your word and faith through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to always repent of our sins and to turn towards you in faith. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Mm-hmm.